An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is Zach Schulman. Zach is a senior editor covering science, business, and technology for the week. He's also a recovering sports writer, having written regularly for the New York Times Sports Section, ESPN Magazine, and other top-level publications. He's covered the Super Bowl, the World Series, and the NBA playoffs. His book, The Performance Cortex, explores how neuroscience is used to understand athletic greatness and motor skills. Welcome, Zach. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So sports, business, neurology, and I happen to know that you grew up around rock and roll. So it's, it's becoming a mantra around here that interesting people have had interesting lives. What's your origin story? What's made you who you are personally as well as professionally? It's funny you say that because I always thought I had a pretty boring childhood and an adolescence. I grew up in a small town in, in Western Massachusetts. There wasn't much going on there. We were like two and a half hours from Boston. We were kind of smack dab in the middle of nowhere. My dad was a dentist and he was an oral surgeon. My mom, my mom had a cool job. She was, and still is, she handles the public relations for Joan Jett and the Blackhearts and Blackheart Records. Joan Jett's still going strong, still touring, which is amazing. And so, yeah, I grew up around rock and roll and, and, and her work on the music business, but it wasn't, it wasn't like I was, you know, backstage at concerts every weekend, you know, mom worked from home in our house. She was our mom, you know, and from the outside, you wouldn't think of her as being a, a rock and roller. And so to us, to me and my sister, it was just kind of a regular thing it felt, you know, kind of like a boring, nothing really happening around here type of childhood. You know, I loved sports always growing up. Sports was a big part of my town. Uh, it was a big part of my childhood. It wasn't something that my parents pushed on, on me and nor did they encourage me to move out of sports. They kind of let me do what I loved and play what I loved and follow what I loved. And for a long time, that was sports. That's what set me on the path of becoming a, a sports writer for the first 10 years or so out of college. So is there something about sports writing that leads to business analysis and investing? And I ask that because my very first job out of college was as a sports writer and you were an economics major who covered sports is now covering business. Is it the competition, understanding advanced baseball statistics? What, what is it about sports and business that seems to make a match? I am not a statistics guy. I'm not one of the, the data number crunchers. And yes, I, I was an economics major at Syracuse, mostly because I wanted something else to, to fall back on outside of journalism or writing. And for some reason, I grasped economics, uh, macroeconomics better than other classes that I was taking at the time. But I knew from the first week that I walked on 
the campus at Syracuse that I wanted to pursue journalism. I wanted to get started at the newspaper and I wanted to write about sports. I've always been interested in the process of things. I think I've kind of understood this later on as I've gotten older. You know, I didn't care that much about game scores or records or what team is doing well at the time. And yes, that's obviously a big part of every game you cover and every event that you're watching or following. But I was interested in the process, how things got to be the way they are, how athletes developed, what made certain guys so great, what made teams uh, and coaches fit and so I really wanted to, you know, may, that may be just because I was never a good athlete myself and I wanted to understand why and what I was missing, even though I had the desire and the know-how of how to play. So that was maybe part of what was driving me to understand athletes and, and, and sports at a deeper level. But I think that also probably translates to pursuing the other types of reporting that I like to do whether that's understanding what makes a good business or what makes a good product or more of the science reporting that I've done, as you mentioned, in, in brain science and, and neuroscience to more recent features I've done on uh, color science and smell and olfaction and things like that. So trying to understand how things work, uh, why they work the way they do, that, that I think has been an undercurrent of my interests and what I've tried to pursue with journalism from the beginning. So I want to go back to neurology in a second, but you mentioned understood the process. And in some ways, it sounds like being a good journalist and understanding the process is a little bit like being a good investor and understanding due diligence in the investment. What makes it work? Have you found that looking at businesses and executives that you're able to apply some of that thinking about what makes a good team in an analogous way to what makes good business? Yeah. I mean, you know, I covered a lot of Jets games as a, as a sports I said a good but... team. <laughs> well, the good managers that I've spoken to, they understand how to get everybody on the same page, how to get people working together toward a common goal. And I think that's something that is very related to the way that locker rooms work. And what was always interesting to me covering sports because I bounced around my role at the New York times was whatever they needed me to cover at a certain time. And so I got very familiar with the inner workings of various different clubhouses and the ways that those clubhouses worked uh, and locker rooms worked between sports were very, very different. The manager uh, of the Yankees handled his players much differently from the coach of the Jets or the coach of the Knicks. That sounds kind of obvious knowing they're different sports, but it's a very gentle, nuanced approach that each of these managers and coaches have to take to understand what's going to get the most out of their players. And, you know, the best coaches that I covered, they, they certainly understood that. And I think that relates to running a business and managing your teams and your workers on a day-to-day -day basis. You have to understand who it is, what type of business that you're running and what makes it the same as others and also different from others. So I was going to ask you about the nature versus nurture discussion. And I guess there's now a third thing when you have a team, which is culture. So you've written about biology and neurology, not just even in terms of the physical aspects of becoming a world-class athlete, muscle strength, things like that, but in terms of mental calculations. For example, figuring out when to swing to hit a fastball that gets from the pitcher's mound to the batter's box in 400 milliseconds, which means you have about 125 milliseconds to make a decision to swing or not, and where to swing, and right. when to swing. 
how much of athletic success is biology? I just have faster neurons. And how much is training? And in some ways, will that carry over into business? Some people just naturally born great bankers or industrialists or technologists. And some people just have to grind it out and it's much more training. And then you can blow it all without having the right culture when you combine right. it with people. One of the things that I found in, in researching and, and, and writing the book about the brains of, of great performers was that there was kind of a tidal wave of research and writing about the 10,000 hours rule and the way to work yourself to greatness and practice and what separates the greatest uh, athletes from the wannabes it tends to be just a, an exorbitant amount of practice and, and work ethic and, and drive that's really kind of unfathomable to most people but it's the amount of hours, those 10,000 hours that those great athletes have put into it. And I wasn't trying to blow that theory up, but I think my approach was trying to take that from a body and physical standpoint and leave it aside and say, well, the 10,000 hours might help build your muscles, but the mental calculations and the processes going on underneath the helmets of these great batters and quarterbacks is something entirely different. And it's not something that we had a great understanding or appreciation for. We often, as sports fans or sports writers, talk about the physical makeups of these guys in awe and women in awe. And we're too drawn and too focused on their physical attributes and not appreciative enough of their mental processes, the calculations, the decisions that they are making uh, on a daily basis. That's what makes them great. And it's what makes someone like a Stephen Curry, who if you saw him walking down the street, you would not see a difference between him and somebody dropping off your mail in the morning, but yet he's become one of the greatest players in the world, not because of anything that he has, you know, physically, if you lined up his physical attributes against 200 other basketball players of his size, you wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup, but there's obviously something about what he sees and how he's able to perform in the game that sets him apart. As far as the training and the ability to get to that point, there are absolutely differences in the ways that our brains calculate and process things. And we don't quite understand yet what makes that difference. Is it genetic or is it trained? I tried to make my book about the intelligence of athletes as we're talking about athletic intelligence. And we don't quite know yet what role genetics plays in intelligence. So if we're talking about athletic intelligence, we don't have a great understanding of the role that genetics plays in athletic intelligence as well. So the 10,000 hours rule was kind of a way to say that this is a story much more about nurture than it is of nature. And I'm not quite sure that it's, that it's just that, that simple. When you're talking about mental calculations, mental processes and abilities, um, you certainly can't throw genetics out the window. What was the reaction to the performance cortex? Did any professional athletes come to you and give you a reaction? I'm not sure if, if it crossed the focus of, of too many professional athletes, but it's been a lingering kind of appreciation and a slow acceptance of, of this type of redefinition of thinking about athletics and, and athleticism. It's going to take time. The, the way that athletics, you know, professional sports has been set in stone, 
is basing everything around your physical abilities. And we have scouting combines for the NBA and for the NFL where, you know, the tasks that these prospects are, are assigned is just jump as high as you can, run as fast as you can, throw as hard as you can. And anybody who's watching sports for five seconds can see that in a game, it's very rare that you see a guy running in a straight line as fast as he can or jumping straight up in the air as high as he can. It's not the way that sports are played. So kind of testing prospects on those sorts of characteristics and abilities to me has always been kind of nonsensical. Um, but that's the way it's been done. It's the way it will be done. And it's going to take time, I think, for teams and for leagues to, to change that. But one of the things that I also I wanted to you know, kind of push athletes toward more opening themselves up to a different type type of of scrutiny from a mental side that they aren't used to. Sports has been inundated with sports psychologists and and mental coaches and and mental health is is obviously a big topic in sports right now. But actual neuroscience is not touched. It's not it's not really approached. Players don't want athletes don't really want to expose themselves to brain scanners and that sorts of equipment and analysis. And and I continue to hope that with my book and with other stories and work by some of these researchers, that there will be more players that are willing to put themselves uh, through that type of analysis, because I think it will be important for sports going forward. I think we need to um, start generating some baselines for what it takes to be great and what the brains of great athletes might look like and how they work. And this isn't a, a totally foreign thing to um, to professional sports. I wrote about in how in, in 1920, Babe Ruth volunteered at the at a clinic in, in Columbia at Columbia University to go through a battery of tests to understand, you know, what was it about his hand-eye coordination uh, and his vision and tests that could determine what made him so great. And he willingly did that. The tests themselves, did they tell uh, researchers too much that it could help them? You know, no. But the fact that he was willing to do that was, I, I think, a great thing for, for the benefit of future athletes. And I wish that... Um, then more players would would do things like that. You know, the, the core audience for this podcast is the Fed Edge community. The, one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on was that you do spotlight the increasingly mental execution nature of sports. The Steph Curry basketball is now about spacing, the analytics in baseball, everything else that you need a mental approach to it. And in some ways, it very much parallels the move to uh, technology in an uh, information-based economy where if sports in you know the 19th century and first half of the 20th century was muscle and now it's becoming more mental similarly business was based on people plants equipment and now it's becoming code and technology and business model and i can easily see where you know maybe we're not measuring the thickness of the myelin sheath around our neurons but the shift towards how agile are you mentally to drive a 21st century business is a different sort of skill set than what was needed in 1930, 1910, et cetera. So what, what's exciting to you today? What's, what, what are you doing that's exciting to you? What's the next big thing going to be in your world? I'm very excited about where this melding of, of business and science and technology is, is headed, John. And I think that's some of these areas aren't really plumbed to the depth or the way that 
that I think they can and they and they should be. We're constantly immersed with incredible technologies, incredible businesses that that blow our minds from what they're able to achieve and the things that we're able to do from a technology standpoint is of course amazing. My feeling is we've kind of become numb to some of the technological advances. If we don't have an iPhone 13 that has 5,000 amazing different functions, we're upset. <laughs> if Facebook and Snap and TikTok, if they're not coming out with new and, and different ways to connect with people all around the world instantaneously and filters, things like that, we're upset. We move on to something else, something better. And, and um, my thing has been trying to, again, getting back to the process of, of things and how, how things work. There's a lot that is right under our noses that still elude us and still create great questions with solutions that could be really mind-blowing and incredible. So I, I'm very focused on exploring more about the bi you know, biology is more my interest lies, whether that's the brain. I just did a uh, story for Bloomberg about smell sensors and uh, the type of technology that's required and the, the type of technology that's coming out in, involved with uh, olfaction, digital olfaction. And it stemmed from this thought, this idea that we have all sorts of sensors on our watches and, and, and phones for our fingers and, you know, Alexa can recognize our voices and we have facial recognition and cameras, but we'd have no sensor that can smell or, or taste. And so why is it that, that our nose is, has been so hard to recreate electronically? And so it turns out there are companies that are working on this, have been working on this for many decades, and it's an incredibly hard problem to solve technologically. And so that was a direction that I just plowed down and spent over a year working on that type of story. And, and again, it's one of those things that we kind of take it for granted. We assume that because we have so much technology, so many technological achievements coming out of Silicon Valley, that we must know everything about our bodies and the world, you know, right underneath our noses and our fingertips, but there's still an incredible amount that we don't know and don't understand. And so I think that the companies that are working in that direction, combining scientific research, technology, most of these are building startups at the same time, either out of university incubators or raising capital. I think that's kind of where the next stage of technological development will be. I'm hoping to continue to find and, and report on stories that head in that direction. All right, let's end with a series of quick questions. What are you reading right now? Codebreaker, the new book about uh, Jennifer Doudna, the uh, researcher who pushed forward with CRISPR technology and gene editing and the importance of RNA, obviously a very timely book today, and it's been great. What been your favorite personalities to interview, either sports yeah. or business? Yeah, I tend to focus on people or storylines that are kind of on the fringes of sports, uh, or, or you know, or business or, or science for that matter. That was kind of my role, you know, at the times, and, and it continues to be kind of my interests. People who are kind of under the radar or on the outskirts of the main event, and that's not to say that I I haven't had the chance to have some really you know great opportunities with some big big names. I really enjoyed Carl Anthony Towns when he was a player at Kentucky. I did a lot of college sports writing and I like the college, um, the college athletes a lot because they tended to be a little bit, you know, more open and, and less jaded and tired of, <laughs> of, of reporters asking them questions all the time. You know, I've had opportunities to interview people like Spike Lee and Michael Rubin, the owner and founder of Fanatics, the sports merchandising company. But my favorite stories have tended to be about the people that most people probably haven't heard of. Like who? 
you know, Jason and Jordan, who I focused in the book, the researchers, the neuroscientists that were at Columbia kind of working on baseball hitters and timing the, the neuroscience of the hitters. I, I had a great time getting to know and, and interviewing, spending a lot of time on Zoom in the last year with Osh Agabi, uh, the founder of Conico, the smell sensor digital olfactory company out of Silicon Valley. Just at, literally hours and hours of, of interviews with him over the course of several months, trying to just understand what he's doing. And he was great. It, it's those type of, uh, of men and women that I love speaking to them anytime I can. How do you like to relax? That's a good question. I forgot what it's like to relax with a young son. I, I don't. I don't know. I have to think back. I like to play golf whenever I can get out and, and and play golf. But actually, on a daily basis, I walk my dog. You know, I'm an editor at a magazine now, so that's my day to day working on stories and writing and meetings and things like that. But every day, I try and at least carve out at least a half an hour to maybe forty minutes an hour to walk the dog listen to a podcast or two. I have a good one for you. It's called Outside In. You can subscribe. <laughs> it's followed. Trust me. <laughs> Last question. What's the one fact or belief you wish everybody knew? Vaccinations work. <laughs> one, one of the things that as a journalist, I, I kind of have shuddered at is the villainization of the idea that I'm just asking questions about the vaccines is a problem for me. And I'll tell you why. And it's not, it's not, I understand that vaccine hesitancy is a concern in this country. I, I, I want mandates. I want to get people vaccinated, all that stuff. And my knee-jerk response is, where are you getting the answers from? If it's Facebook, then that, you know, that's a problem. But as a journalist and as somebody who uh, has always tried to think critically about things. I feel it's important to um, have a critical or, or skeptical view about most things. I've taught in journalism school. If your mother tells you she loves you, you, you know, double check, make sure you got to fact check that. And so the vilification of that notion, I'm just asking questions. That's a tough road for me. That's been striking me lately as something that could be a problem. Uh, and I think everybody needs to keep asking questions and make sure they're getting their answers from the right places. <laughs> that's the most important thing, but I'm a believer in asking questions. So that's what I'm going to try and keep doing uh, as long as I can continue to do it. Thanks. You've been listening to Downside In. I'm John Lukomnik and our guest has been Zach Schoenberg. By his own admission, a recovering sports writer, by my reckoning, a smart, perceptive journalist who is senior editor for business and technology at The Week. Zach, thanks so much. Thanks, John. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you'd leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show, and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com. <laughs>